We're going to be in First Kings, a little bit of 18 and then 19 for the rest of the way. Let's pray. Lord, now as we uh, take time to open your word and to look into it, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to hear and to understand. And Lord, as we're hearing and understanding, we ask that your spirit would be in challenging and convicting each one of us so that as we see and hear what it is that you want and what you long for in our lives, we will seek to have you bring those things about in our lives as we seek to obey you and submit ourselves to you. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word, and we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All through my high school years, I had the privilege of being involved in a number of different summer programs that were, all of them, three to four weeks long, and um, there were places that I would go either for a camp or retreat or some kind of a long-term missions trip, and and, and it was one of those things that you go and, and you come come back just incredibly excited about the things of God because for for that whole time period you've been doing things like um, being able to have time for your devotions and time in small groups and and time listening with others to to God's word and and you're surrounded with other people who were also being challenged and encouraged and I, and and I'd come back and and many times I would describe it as kind of a mountaintop experience it was one of those wonderful things that I enjoyed so much and, and, and I would come back and say, well, I'm going to do the same things at home. And I did some of them. But again, it's also wasn't set up to live at home like we did on that, on those trips and on those, in those situations. Um, and, and, and I, let me just say, I, God has done really wonderful things in my heart and in my life through those mountaintop experiences or those times of encouragement. Um, but one of the things I've learned down through the years is that I, I, I would go, I would enjoy and be challenged in a lot of ways, and then to be able to come back and, and take that challenge with me and apply it in the ways that were normal in, the, in my daily life. And that was the, that was the important lesson I learned in, in about a five or six year period of time. It wasn't that I could take this time of special um, focus on the Lord and do the exact same things at home so that I could feel the same way. It was about taking those things that I learned and grew, applying them into my life, and then living in the daily normal things that go on all around me in a way that honored Christ as a result of the things that he'd been doing in my life that summer. And so I I guess I was just kind of thinking that through this week as I was looking at Mount Carmel, and then we're going to be at Mount Horeb in just a few minutes as we look and and thinking about how Elijah had both times up in the mountains where special things happened and yet that isn't where Elijah was going to be. He was going to be with people and he was going to be confronting kings and confronting the people of Israel. And so there's nothing wrong with setting aside special times for encouragement and, and for uh, times to learn and grow. Every year, <clears throat> I would. Um, it started when I was in Detroit, um, and a friend of mine invited me to go to the Moody Pastors Conference. And it was one of those times when I was about ready to say, "I'm done." I, I was burned out. And I got to Moody, and we were just surrounded. You know, hearing 1,500 men sing, and then having having uh, speakers just really challenge. And I walked away from that thinking, "Wow, I was encouraged. I was." helped 
And now I can take that and say, okay, Lord, help me to continue walking every day the way you want me to. Elijah, if you remember last week, was reminding Israel that they had a choice. They could follow God or they could follow Baal. They could not follow both. And I'm just going to touch on real quickly uh, chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. Again, this is Elijah's prayer, just standing there before the altar. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, and even licked up the water in the trench. Verse 39, where we'll jump in now. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now remember what had happened just before this. Was the prophets of Baal had a half a day to try to make something happen. And all 450 of them, no matter what they did, couldn't get Baal to do a thing. Which says something about Baal. So Elijah then, verse 40, commanded, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Now we're going to deal with that in just a second. Um, look at James five seventeen to 18. Because Elijah sends Ahab home and he starts praying for rain. And this is from James. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for the next three years and six months, it did not rain. And if you remember, I believe that he started praying that because he understood the Old Testament law that when the people turned away from God, God was going to withdraw his blessing. And one of the things he was going to withdraw was rain and harvests. And so he started praying that it wouldn't rain, and God responded and made it not rain. Um, Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so you've got, <clears throat> and James is just telling us a little bit about Elijah, man of prayer, stopped the rain, brought it back, and everything went on as normal. Now, verse 45 <clears throat> of First Kings 18, A little while the sky grew dark, and the clouds and the wind, and there was a downpour. So remember he stayed up on the mountain, and he's praying and sending his servant to go see if there's any clouds coming, and, and eventually they see the clouds coming. Now, stop and think about this. Baal was the god of the the storms, the god of uh, fertility, the god that would bring the spring rains and all that kind of stuff. That's what they believed about Baal. That's why they offered sacrifices to him. And yet, three and a half years, Baal had not been able to do anything. Not a thing. And so now they've had this confrontation, and the prophets of Baal have been killed, and Elijah prays, And the rain comes. And with the rain coming, you've got a sense that there's a real strong statement about Baal being made when Elijah prays and promises Ahab, go on home, the rain's coming, and sure enough, it comes down hard. So that's a a final statement, if you will, on Baal. Baal couldn't answer and bring fire from heaven to his prophets, and he couldn't bring rain either. So Elijah prays and God does that. Now, why did Elijah and the people do what they did with the prophets of Baal? Um, and, I, and I just want to just share this very briefly, because sometimes we get into thinking through, well, why did they have to do that? Well, in this case, there was no real choice if you were going to follow God's law. 
Um, Deuteronomy 13, 4 says, Serve only the Lord your God and fear Him only. And can we put that up there, please? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Obey His commands, listen to His voice, cling to Him. And the false prophets or visionaries, and what that means is those who are, are dreaming dreams or having visions supposedly from God, the false prophets, visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death. For they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God, who redeemed you from slavery and brought you out of the land of Egypt. Since they try to lead you away, astray from the way of the Lord your God commanded, you must put them to death. In this way you purge the evil from among you. And so that was the reason they stepped out and did what they did. Now we, living today, we think about those kinds of things and think, wow, that's, you know... And yet the reality was God said, these men, what were they trying to do? Leading you into things that were un- horribly evil. The things that Baal supposedly required. I mean, the, I'm saying Baal in that fact that he's, he's not real, but that they did things that were horrendous in the name of Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And so you've got the people of Israel responding now. They see the fire come down. They see the altar uh, totally burned up. They understand because they've fallen on their faces and said, okay, yeah, we've seen what Baal can do, which is nothing. We've seen what God can do, which is incredible. And now we will obey God's law and follow through on this step. And so the obedience to God's word started right there. As they said, okay, these men have tried to take us away from God, and we will treat them accordingly. I love the way Elijah brings them back to seeing the realities of God's Word and teaching them again. This is what God expects. He expects us to be single-minded and focused on Him. Not Baal and God, just Baal. I'm sorry, just God. (laughs) But that was the choice He gave them, right? Baal or God. And they said, yeah, Baal's not the God. God is the God. I'm getting twisted here in just a second. How can we keep from being distracted? That's a really good thing for, for us to think through. I was thinking about that this week. And how do I keep from drifting away? Or how, how would I keep from walking away from the Lord? I've had friends and family members who just plain walked away. What do we do to make sure that we're not chasing after false gods, or whatever that may look like in our culture? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 13.4. <clears throat> it says, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. And you see those words that are there, those are there, I think, just as commands for us to grab a hold of. And I want to just take a second and look at each one of those. Moses said, follow the Lord your God. And this is the whole idea of a personal. He's your God, and you need to follow him. And and, and even in an anti-Christian culture, which we now have, He says, you need to live for the truth. You need to follow what God says and do what He says. Walk that out in your life every day. Second thing, revere the Lord only. And that's the whole sense of having reverence and awe, respect. Um, You know, we have reverence and awe for all kinds of things. You know, we watch someone who's a star at at, uh, football or basketball, and if we ever run into them, there's a sense of awe as we see a person who can do the kinds of things they do. Take that and multiply it times a thousand, and that's how we should be feeling about God Himself. Just this awe and this reverence and just this wonder that the God of the universe 
would love us and care for us. Third thing, obey his commands. Walk with the Lord. Don't turn away. Focus on his word. The people of Israel had focused on not God for quite a while. They drifted away and were being involved in things they shouldn't have. And Elijah brings them back, forces them to take a look at the reality, and says, now we need to go back to obeying God. And he says also, listen to his voice. Listen to his voice. Now let's go ahead and put that next one up there, if you would, please. Thank you. So listen to his voice. This is the whole idea of, how am I hearing God? And, and sometimes I think we get um, a little distracted thinking about, well, how does God actually speak to us? And there's all kinds of ways. I, and one of the ways that the Lord speaks to me is every now, now and then there'll be a, a verse that just grabs my attention and says, this is for you today. Or maybe someone else will share a thought of encouragement. Yes, Thursday I was sitting down with some of our friends from South America and, and they said something and I thought, man, I, I need to take that statement and, and think about that and pray about that. So there's, there's that. And there's our conscience. You know, God is not limited in how He communicates to us if, if we will listen. And that's the critical part. Are we willing to listen? Listen to His voice. Serve Him. And, and serve Him, this is also, this is a word that can be translated worship. And one of the reasons for that is that worship is a form of service. We serve God by worshiping Him. So there's that whole idea there. And then the last one, my favorite one, as I was looking at this verse, Cling to Him. Just cling to Him. Remain faithful and loyal. Never give up or turn away, no matter how things hard things get. I spoke with some friends this past week who have served the Lord in a number of different countries in South America. And they have lived through some incredibly painful things. Not just emotionally and spiritually, but sometimes physically horrible, horrible pain they've had to deal with. And the question Sue was sharing with me, the question was, sometimes you wonder, where is God in all of this? You know, this is so severe and so hard. And yet you go back to the whole idea of, there's nowhere else to go. I cling to Him. I cling to Him. And so we honor Him because He is God and we are not. And we accept what He's doing in our lives because we remember that He suffered. That's a good thing for us always to remember. Why is it that we know that God loves us and cares for us and even in the midst of difficulties and trials and pain and hardship? Look at the cross. Consider the cross. Think about the fact that He died for you, for me. And... I love the writer of Hebrews says, think about it, cling to it, so that you won't get weary and lose heart in the midst of whatever that struggle, tribulation, or pain may be. Hang on. Keep looking to the cross. So may we reverently follow and cling to the Lord each day. <clears throat> so then Ahab gets home, and uh, verse 1 of chapter 19 he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, um, including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. Now, it's interesting. I'm sure he didn't tell Jezebel, hey, you know what? There was this contest up there. God and all of your prophets, God won. They lost. 
He didn't, he didn't tell her that. He says, you should have seen what that evil man Elijah did. He killed all your prophets. That's how I'm sure it came across from Ahab. And so Jezebel sends a message to Elijah, uh, basically saying, your days are numbered. Uh, don't expect to be alive for 24 more hours. I plan on getting you before then. And then verse 3, the response Elijah has to that, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, it's interesting to me, because as I was reading through this again, and it's a really well-known passage, Uh, many of us have read it many times, but as I was reading it through again this week and studying it again, one of the thoughts that struck me was after Mount Carmel, you would have thought, this is a revival now. Let's go. Let's take this thing. Let's get people back in touch with God. I mean, look. Look what God has done. You know, people said, the Lord is God. All right, well, let's launch this revival over the whole nation. And I think, I'm sure that must have been what if maybe Elijah was thinking along those lines, okay, God won, now we got to go. And of course now he gets back down to the palace area and Jezebel says, you killed my prophets, you're next. And he feels that on a, on a very real level personally. And he runs um, from that area. Now, from God's perspective, this is a huge victory. I mean, 450 prophets of Baal are gone. And there's been a a bunch of people that have seen the reality of the fact that Baal was nothing compared to God. And so that's that's a reality that's happening. But Elijah takes off. Let's go ahead and put that map up there, if you will. Now, from Mount Carmel up at the top and, and Samaria, somewhere, somewhere right near there, um, it was about 120 miles uh, down to Beersheba, the southern part of Judah. <clears throat> and it's a trip that would normally take about six days for people in that time frame walking. And, and you know, it's the kind of thing they did all the time. So a uh, six, seven-day trip from Mount Carmel down to Beersheba. Maybe faster if he was really wanting to get out of um, Jezebel's area. <clears throat> and we are seeing Elijah here at his weakest point. Um, Elijah was bold and he was fiery and he was passionate. He was a prophet who did not compromise in any way. He was one of those prophets who did amazing things. And, and, and the nation eventually came to look back on him and revere him. Uh, even long after he was gone. And God held Elijah up as an example um, so that prophecies were written about the Messiah and the forerunner was going to be someone in the spirit of Elijah. Remember that? As a matter of fact, John the Baptist, it was said that he would be someone who would serve in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So that's Elijah. And yet that's not who we're seeing right now. We're seeing him at his weakest point when he's had this amazing spiritual victory and now he's going through dark, dark times. To Elijah, even though he'd seen the flames and seen everything else, things were, were lost. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid, fled for his life, went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, left his servant there. Verse 4, Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. 
And again, think about where you, where you are when you're feeling like, okay, it's, it's time for my, my days are done. I just don't want to do this anymore. And that's what he was doing. That's exactly what Elijah was doing. He was saying, listen, I've, I've had it. I can't do this anymore, Lord. So there's three things Elijah was, and I just want to kind of hit those real quickly. <clears throat> Thanks. Elijah was exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually. I think that's a pretty... You look at what he went through, what he did, how he got people together, uh, the confrontation, the prayer for rain, all of those things that took it out of him. And if you've ever been through a whole lot of things, even a, a time when you're just at a real spiritual high, many times it's after that that you'll feel some kind of, of a letdown. He was disillusioned. And someone got excited about these here. Disillusioned, discouraged, and depressed. I would say the depressed is probably the strongest sense of what Elijah was feeling. Uh, he expected things to turn out differently. He hoped that this victory over Baal would make sure that the nation would turn as a whole and follow follow God. And yet what happened? That didn't happen. And so at this point, I'm sure that Elijah was hearing that voice spurred on by the depression, spurred on by the lies of the, of the evil one. None of what you've done matters. What you've done just doesn't matter. And so he's hearing this, and he's, he's depressed. He's seeing what happened, and now he's running and feeling like you know his life is on the line. And, and as a result, Elijah has a distorted perspective. His despair leads him to ignore what happened on Mount Carmel. I mean, he prayed. God sent fire down in such a way that it just wiped out this altar, everything. And the people themselves saw it and said, this is God. Now that same God could have done anything he wanted to to Jezebel if he said, hey, Jezebel, you can't touch me. But that was not where he was at at that point. Elijah was struggling with all of these things. And Elijah was really depressed and in a dark time. It's interesting, I... um. One of, one of the guys I like to read from time to time is Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, known as the Prince of Preachers in London. Um, the church that he was started to minister at and kept preaching in, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, had to rebuild so that they could seat 6,000 people, probably the first megachurch. Uh, and so every Sunday from 1861 to 1892, he preached, and he preached God's Word, and that's what he was about. He was about God's Word being told to people. Millions of people heard him in person, and millions of others around the world heard him as well. Uh, matter of fact, at a certain point in time, there were people taking down his sermons in shorthand. They would go down to the telegraph office, and it would be telegraphed to New York. And in the Monday edition of the New York Times, they would print the sermons by Spurgeon. They were there for many years. And you know what's encouraging to me? The man struggled with lifetime depression. I mean, big, big depression. And this is his, a quote from him. <clears throat> I know by most painful experience what deep depression means, being visited at seasons by no means few or far between. What's he saying? I know what it feels like. I know what it is. It happens a lot. That was his statement. He went on to say on another occasion, 
He wrote to a friend, I've never lost my calm faith in God, but at times I've been so depressed that my faith has been strained to the limit. And so we hear about Elijah, and we hear that, hey, this mighty, passionate, powerful prophet of God goes through some depression, pretty heavy-duty stuff. We hear that others who God uses tremendously at times, and in Spurgeon's case, regularly went through deep times of depression. What's encouraging in both cases, we'll see with Elijah, is that, you know, that it doesn't stay there. In Spurgeon's case, it didn't change anything for him. It just meant he had to spend more time trusting God in those deep, dark times to come through and deliver him. I just was so challenged by the fact that there's a faithfulness here that we're being asked to to look at and understand and to emulate. Um, we all go through dark times. We all go through times that are just you wonder where God is. And 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 again, the Lord knew exactly what was going on with Spurgeon, and I'm sure Spurgeon prayed regularly that God would take it away. But like Paul's thorn, God did not take it away. God didn't take away the depression, didn't take away the thorn that Paul had. But he was at work giving strength and grace to keep on going. And and remember, the sovereign God of the universe has said to us, cling, cling to me, hang on. Hang on for dear life. Know that I love you. And how do we know that he loves us? Hebrews 12.3 Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's read that together. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we know God cares deeply for us? Consider him. Remember when Jesus had a number of just crowds surrounding him, and finally there were some hard things that Jesus had said, and they were all leaving, and he turned to the disciples and said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter turned around and said, where else can we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. And on many levels, that's exactly what happens in times like this. You say, Lord, where else can I go? You are the answer to all of this. Verse 5, we find out that uh, God cares deeply for Elijah. He lays down and he falls asleep, but an angel comes and wakes him up and says, Hey, you need to eat. And so there's water and and bread provided for him. He eats and drinks and he goes right back to sleep. In verse 7, the angel wakes him up again and says, Listen, you've got to eat and drink because you've got to take a journey here. And um, it says in verse 8, So he got up and he ate and drank, and the food given him gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. Let's go ahead and put that map up there, if you would, please. The mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And so you see the distance there. Um, It's not apparently a 40-day trip back in those days, but for some reason God had him take those 40 days very, very carefully, very slowly. It was a trip, apparently, that could be made in almost half of that time. But Elijah left 
Israel left Judah, went through the wilderness, and he went to Mount Horeb, or we also know it as Mount Sinai. So he spends the night there, and the next morning, in the second part of verse 9, the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed everyone, um, killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So that's his answer. What are you doing here? Well, Lord, listen to all the people. This is what the people are doing. The people have turned away from you. Now let me just say this very carefully. Depression is not logical. Okay? I mean, you know, we can look at this and say, wait a minute here, you know, the people weren't chasing you. Jezebel was the one who was after you. But Elijah's at this point in a, in a point of real darkness, and he he feels like it's everything has fallen apart, and there's just nothing that is going well. Um, he forgot on some level. He still had Obadiah, who had saved a hundred prophets. And yet, again, think it through, it's not that he doesn't know those things. It's that right now what he feels is, I am alone, and what I have done doesn't matter. And that's the kind of thinking that's going through. Um, through the eyes of his depression, he was alone and there was no hope. There's an implication here, I think. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Uh, one of the best questions in Scripture, I think, on, on many labels, maybe uh, levels, maybe God was putting this kind of an emphasis on the question He asked Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here, forty days walk away from where you should be? Or Elijah, what are you doing here, so far from Israel? Elijah, what are you doing here so far from the ministry and the prophetic gifts that I've given you to exercise? Why are you here instead of there using those gifts? Every now and then, I feel like the Lord, the Spirit of God asks me a question like that. Mark, why are you here? And I have to honestly ask myself, why am I sitting in front of the TV when I should be studying, perhaps? Or, or why am I hiding my, from my life and escaping in my books for hours at a time, or my video games, or binge-watching something, because I just don't want to deal with the stuff out here. I want to just, just want to be right here. Why am I avoiding that hard thing I'm supposed to do, whether it's a phone call or a visit? Why am I hiding at work rather than going home and spending the time I need to in my family with my relationships with my wife and kids? Why am I losing myself in sports or games or whatever rather than thinking and pursuing God? Why am I spending hours on the computer rather than time with God or family or other productive things? Now please understand, I'm I am not coming down hard on any of those things. Uh, I love reading. I love watching things. I understand all that. What I'm talking about here is balance. If all I do is binge watch my favorite show, and in order to do that, I put everything else aside, then I probably need to take a look at that and what's going on in my own heart as a result of that. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Maybe God will be saying to us, Mark, what are you doing here? Or what are you doing here? 
And then we pray for God's grace to move out and do what He wants us to do. In verse 11, the Lord says, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. And Elijah stood there. The Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper or still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. And the voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Didn't we just hear that? (laughs) He asked him, and then he gives him this demonstration of the power of God. Think about it. He came from Mount Carmel where fire came down from heaven and destroyed the altar and all that was there. And now he's seen God send wind that breaks rocks off the mountain and shakes the mountain and flames that he can feel and hear. And then he whispers, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replies the same way, the same words. I've zealously served the Lord, but the people of Israel, they've done this, and, and they're trying to kill everybody, and I'm the, I'm the only one left. Elijah has been alone and safe at this point, probably five, six weeks is the estimate of time that has gone by since he left. Lots of time to deal with his own fears and doubts, and I'm sure God has shown himself just as he had a minute ago in powerful, powerful ways. On some levels, I think the message that God was sending to him with the fire and the, and the wind and the earthquake and the flames is, you're safe with me. You're safe. I've got you. You don't need to worry about Jezebel she can't touch you because I have got you and you're safe it's interesting because at that point in verse 15 then the Lord told him go back the way you came (laughs) go back the way you came he said I've got three things I want you to do anoint uh, Hazel, king of Aram, and Jehu, king of Israel, and, and anointed Elisha to be your replacement. But go back. Go back. Where? To the palace? Go back to Samaria. Go back. And, and do what you were called to do. And then he says in verse 18, just so that you know, Elijah, that it isn't what you think and what you feel always, I still preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal, or kissed him. And so what he was saying is, you're not alone. You're not alone. And what you do matters. For Elijah, two very powerful things that he had to get a hold of. What do we take away from all this? <clears throat> I have conversations with people every now and then and I remember a couple times that I was talking with someone. They said, you know, 
yeah, I believe in God and the Bible and everything, but I could believe a whole lot more if I could just see something really spectacular. You know, like crossing the Red Sea or, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, let me ask you a question. You got Israel and they saw the ten plagues. They came across the, 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 the Red Sea. Who was it that disobeyed God? I mean, incredibly. And weren't able to enter the promised land. Oh, the people that saw all the fantastic spiritual things. And at that point I said, you know what? Sometimes... If God does that, great, that's wonderful. You praise Him for the opportunity and that experience that you've had. But the experience isn't what leads you to walking with Christ more. It's knowing Him and pursuing Him in His Word. So Elijah's up on Mount Carmel and God sends the fire, but it didn't help him much when he was in that moment of indecision and in that moment when Jezebel threatened him. And I think sometimes we get caught looking for the excitement of some kind of experience And maybe we miss the quiet voice in our conscience or the words on the page in the Bible that God is using to try to touch us. So you had Mount Carmel and then you got Mount Sinai where again he sees the incredible power of God breaking rocks and howling winds and shaking earth and and furnace. But God spoke to him in a whisper. Not in all those things. So I think when we get hung up seeking bigger, better experiences from God, we have to be really careful that we don't miss the still, small voice. We have to be able to listen and to hear. And God spoke to Elijah and said, okay, now it's time to go back. It's time for you to go back to work. And and don't forget, Elijah, I've got you, and there are 7,000 people who never followed Baal, ever. I'm just kind of thinking through some of these things this week, and we had someone, our friends from South America were with us for a day, and <clears throat> as we were getting together to leave, uh, one of them says, I want to pray these verses over you. From Isaiah 43, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you, sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And that's the kind of thing we need to grab onto. When we're struggling, hurting, when we know someone else is... Lord, help them to see this and help them to understand that they don't need to fear because you've redeemed them and help them to understand that that they belong to you. And it doesn't matter if they're waters or rivers or flames. Lord God, you've got them. We are called to enjoy and be encouraged by those times we have when God gives us special things and special events and special times. 
But may we live, leave this place today and may we cling to the Lord our God no matter what. May we cling to Him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word. and Thank You for the promises of Your Word and the challenges of Your Word as well. I ask, Lord, that You would take these words and that You would apply them in my life and in my heart that I would seek to live them out this week, every day, no matter what comes. I pray for my brothers and sisters here too, Lord, that they would have a strong sense of the fact that you are their God and you're watching over, caring for, leading, guiding, and encouraging. Thank you again for your amazing word. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to consider you and all that you went through for us so that we won't get discouraged and give up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.